0: Good morning, Freshwater. Morning to everybody online. Um, We are, we're going to get into the book of John today, but uh, we can't miss an opportunity like what just happened in worship there. I don't know whether you're here in person or online if you worship the way I did, if you felt the presence of God in that worship, if you felt the burden of the Holy Spirit there, and how you react when you feel that. You know, I think in our churches, sometimes when we, when we feel that burden of that presence, we hear about the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Sometimes we're afraid of it. We don't know what to do. And I just want to take this minute to tell you if you're worried or you're concerned, you don't know what the Holy Spirit is or what you're supposed to do, let me make it simple. It's not that hard. It's the outpouring of Christ in you. It's Jesus' presence in your life. It's Jesus' love. It's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's his willingness to heal, his desire to be with us, his leading, his teaching, and it's real easy to get. You just open your hands and receive it. The Holy Spirit isn't something you got to work for. It's not something to be afraid of. It's a blessing in your life. What you just experienced in worship, you can have every second of every day. Just receive the Holy Spirit. If you're going to this church, if you're hearing this message, if you're going through your lives and you're wondering what to do, just ask him and receive the presence of the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for an opportunity to be with you, hear your word, worship you, Lord. Lord, let this message be received, open minds and open hearts. Lord, let it be your message, your words, that reaches down deep in each of us. Let it not be anything of man. Let your message and its truth ring true, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Amen. Well, good morning, Freshwater. Um, as I said, we've been going through a series in uh, John's Gospel message. Today, we're gonna be in chapter seven, if you wanna turn there in your books or your phones. and chapter seven... We're going to walk through the whole chapter, and there's a lot of things that happen in John 7. Uh, Jesus is actually going to go a few places. It's over the course of a week. He's going to interact with a whole bunch of different people, and there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. But over the course of the entire chapter, and all of the events, and all the interactions, there's one theme I want you to think about. This theme's in the form of a question, and that question is, who is Jesus. It's a question everybody who interacts with him through this chapter is going to be faced with. and We're going to see how they respond. But for us, I want you to keep that as a thought in your mind because it's a question for each one of us. And I think what happens with the question of who is Jesus is oftentimes we think it's a one-time question. We think the question of who is Jesus is that one-time question that you have to answer at salvation. And, and truly, it is. Jesus, who is Jesus, is the question of salvation that we all have to answer. But who is Jesus is a question that we should be asking and answering every day and every hour of our life. Because when the times are good, when times are prosperous, when things are happy and joyful, do you know who Jesus is in those times? When the times are tough, when adversity's there there's pain and sorrow. Do you know who Jesus is in those times? It's so important to have a question answered of who is Jesus. So that's the question we're going to look at today. Chapter 7, it starts off with this, this phrase, after this. So to properly understand where we're going, we have to know where we've been. What happened that we're coming after this? So Let's set the stage here a little bit for you and John. Uh, the first six chapters, what we have is Jesus has come, he's called his disciples, he's going around the region, he's teaching his message, preaching his message, and performing some miracles. And in doing this, he's amassing this following. People who have followed him, trusted him, people are wondering what it is, people would just want more of it. And in doing so, in some of his teachings, he has started to get, in some of the miracles, a little bit of opposition. We've seen some opposition from the Jewish leaders about the type of miracles, when the miracles are performed, and the type of teaching, and even the authority with which he says he can teach. But the crowd keeps growing. The followers keep seeking after Jesus, right? And in chapter 6, which we read two weeks ago, there was this incredible miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 this huge, massive people, this following Jesus had, that he fed through this miraculous revenge. And then at the end of chapter 6, we get a hard teaching from Jesus. See, after the feeding of the 5,000, he went across the lake, and his disciples found him. And he taught on this concept of the bread of life and of the body and blood of Christ. And he taught this, this real difficult thing, hard to understand, that if If you don't eat of his body and drink of his blood, that life that's offered won't be in you. And it was because of this difficult teaching and this teaching of this realization of what he was saying when he said, I am the bread of life, this relation to his deity and his authority, people started to fall away. Chapter 6, verse 66, it says, From this time many of his disciples turned back, and no longer followed him. His crowd, his following, had started to diminish. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7. Read with me, uh, or follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposefully staying away from Judea, because the Jews were willing to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea. So that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one can no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus said to them, The right time for me has not yet come, but for you any time is right. The world cannot hate me, but it cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. And having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. So what do we have going on here? We have a setting. Um, It's the Feast of Tabernacles, maybe the Feast of Booths, your Bible says, your version, And what this feast is, it's in the latter part of the year. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, that was around the time of the Passover. This is about six months later. So during that time of six months, Jesus was staying just in Galilee with his disciples going about teaching. And now this feast has come, and this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, is a joyous feast. It really is a celebration because it's commemorating or remembering God's provision for his people while they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And so they go. And this feast is one where if you're a Jew, if you're in the area, you are called to make the trek down to Jerusalem, make the trek down to the temple so that you can take part in this feast, in this celebration. And they would go, and through the course of this week, they would set up shelters, and they would, they would live and eat out of these shelters in remembrance Of this time in God's provision and so what we have is with that setting Jesus's brothers are saying hey look we're making the trek we're heading down we've seen what you've been doing just hanging out here in Judea even though you lost your disciples let's go down there and go get them back let's go down there and go go teach down there perform the miracles down there and let's get your following back let's get the disciples back you can't stay here if you want to be this public figure Go down into Judea, and let's go get this back. So they're encouraging him, right? They're encouraging Jesus. His brothers are encouraging him. Let's go this. They're motivating him. But did you you catch when we read through here, there's something off about that, something kind of wrong about what's going on, because his brothers are motivating him to go do this, right? Encouraging him. But right after that, it says... For even his own brothers did not believe in him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. So what's going on? If if they're encouraging him to go down and perform miracles and do teachings and get his disciples back, why are they doing this if they don't believe in him? What we find is it's not because they don't believe in him. It's they don't believe in him as who he said he is. They don't believe in Jesus, who is the savior of the world. They don't believe in Jesus, who is the coming Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus, who is God. Now, see, what they believe in is the Jesus they want. It's the Jesus that was prosperous in the good times. It's Jesus had the huge following. Jesus, the political leader. You see, they're not looking for Jesus, the bread of life. They just want Jesus who gives them bread. And that's what they're looking to do. They want Jesus to go down and reclaim that position. And I think for us today, I wonder, how many of us are like Jesus' brothers? Jesus' brothers who, at this moment, when they're faced with the question, who is Jesus, the answer is a picture that we've developed. It's the picture of Jesus that we want. It's not who he said he is. It's the Jesus we want in the good times, in the happy times. It's not the Jesus who says that sin exists. What does your picture of Jesus look like? And I think there's something deeper. As I was studying this and going through that, I think there's actually an even deeper concern for us, church, in this. So if we look at this, these are Jesus' brothers. Right? They grew up with him, they know him, they followed him, they were part of his ministry, they're encouraging him. By all accounts, if you were to see them, see who they are, what they were doing in their relationship to Christ, they would be a picture of a believer. They would look, smell, feel, taste, right? Like a follower of Christ, a believer in Jesus. But they're missing the key element. Because they didn't actually believe in who he was. And I think that's a warning to us as a church. You see, I love church, but we can come to church, sit in the building, we can go to community groups, we can put on the clothes, wear the mask, say the right things, put stuff on social media. We can be the cheerleader for Jesus, but unless you actually believe he's who he says he is, salvation's gonna elude you. It's not believing in all the stuff it's not believing that, you, that Jesus is just this thing that's there to prosper you in the good times. It's believing Jesus is who he says he is. And for the for Jesus' brothers, Jesus, the answer to that question is somebody that they've made up, not who Jesus says he is. So let's pick up the story. Jesus' brothers then go to the feast, and it says Jesus goes up Later. Right? And it says in verse 11, now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where's that man? Right? They knew, people were trekking down to Jerusalem for this. They were on the lookout for him to get him, arrest him, and as it said earlier, take his life. But then it says in verse 12, amongst the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him, muttering about him. Some said, he's a good man. And others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. There's another great lesson here. People are already, he's the talk of the town, right? Jesus at the festival, before he even gets there, everybody's talking. Some people have experienced him. Some people have heard of him. Some people have gotten it secondhand. Some people know that they're after him. Everybody's trying to get a piece of Jesus. What's going on? But notice what it says. It was in widespread whispering muttering. And there in verse 13, no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. They were afraid if they talked about Jesus, much less said that they agreed or followed Jesus what would happen to them? harm that would come to them, physical harm that may come to them just for talking about Jesus. I think there's a lesson for us in that. You see, there are areas in our world countries and cities and, and, and governments in this world that if we travel there, we will be under physical harm and threat and danger if we speak about Jesus. But that's not here in America. That's not here in Ohio. That's not here in Wadsworth. That's not here in this church. You're not going to be arrested and killed for talking about Jesus in public. And yet I wonder how many of us still talk in whispers and hushed tones about Jesus in public. How many of us when we're out at work or at school or with our friends or at social media, are worried about speaking about Jesus in public. And so we just talk and wish. How many of us, myself included, we don't talk about Jesus at school or work? But when we find somebody who knows Jesus at work, it's like, oh, oh, you do too. You know Jesus. Oh, that's me. I'm a Jesus follower. It's whispers, it's hushed tones. Why? It's because we're not worried about the Jewish authority and persecution, but we're worried about what every other person, group, organization, or system is going to think or do to us. Why? It's because we have somehow given them authority. If you're worried about the response in social media, if you talk about Jesus, why? It's Because you've somehow given them authority to rule over you in their comments and backlash? Your work, your friends, your family, if you only talk in hushed tones about Jesus, is it because you've given them authority to do that, and to do something negative in your life? You're worried about them. Have you handed authority over to somebody else other than God? And it keeps you from talking aloud about Jesus. Next time you find yourself whispering, ask yourself, who has the authority in this? when it comes to Christ. So in verse 13, they're talking about Jesus. And Jesus here, as we get into verse 14, encounters a second group of people. We've already encountered his brothers, but a second group of people that I have to answer this question. And it says in verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching's not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? crowd responds you're demon possessed you're crazy who's trying to kill you we've got this second group of people let me explain what's going on here the text alludes to who these people are you see it says that they were amazed at Jesus's teaching and they didn't know that he was they were trying to kill him which means this is a group of people that haven't encountered Christ before and it makes sense because Jesus has come midway through the the feast, and he's come into the temple courts to teach. So in the temple courts, you have people not just from Jerusalem, but from all over that have made the trek in. So you have people that have never experienced Jesus before, never heard of Jesus before. You've got teachers and religious leaders that are there. These groups would come in, and they'd group together, and religious leaders and teachers would come by, and they'd sit down, and they'd talk to them, and they'd teach them from the word. And so you have this different group of people who are experiencing Jesus for the first time. He's teaching them, and they're amazed. There's two parts to that statement. How did this man get such learning? One, it's something that's just so common and unique with Jesus. See, people, they're aware of the teaching. They're taught by the Jewish leaders and authorities. But every time in the gospel accounts we see new people hearing Jesus, they're amazed at his teaching. I looked it up the other day, I found 23 different occurrences of people experiencing Jesus and the first reaction is amazement at Jesus. But the second part of it says, how did this man get such learning without having studied? It's as if the the leaders who were there the teachers are saying, wow, I'm amazed, but I don't remember seeing you in class. I don't remember you being in school with me. How'd you get this information? going to need to see some credentials. Where's your degree from? You didn't go to one of these schools here. And in fact, I, I didn't see you in class. I didn't have you in class. I don't know what your credentials are. How do you have the authority to teach this? And so they question him. And Jesus gives like this perfect response. He doesn't beat around the bush. He knows the audience that's there. It's people that are experiencing for the first time. And all he does is he goes and points right to God. He goes right to God. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It's like this perfect response. It says, you want to know what authority I have? You want to know who I am, where these teachings come from? Go look at God. That's where my teaching comes from. And I love it because not only does he say that, but there's two parts to this statement. It's my teachings, not my own, and it comes from him who sent me. My teachings, not my own, points to the humanity of Christ. And that in his humanity, he's not claiming this knowledge that he's grown and he's developed and he's cultivated. And in his divinity, he's pointing to, it comes from the one who sent me. He is from God. This perfect response from Jesus. So these people who are sitting there and their first encounter with Jesus, like many of us here who don't believe and we're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't say there's all these things you gotta learn. He just says, I'm from God. Go look at God. And then there's verse 17. Verse 17, I think, is one that I think verse 17 is something that sometimes we, we would, it's a verse we would brush over, brush past, not give much thought to perhaps. But I think verse 17 is so controversial in our world today. You see, the concept that's in verse 17, if I were to apply this concept that we're going to talk about to any other area of life, we'd have no problem with it. If I were to apply this concept that we're going to show in verse 17 to your, your education, your Um, your career, your family, sports, music, your hobbies. We'd be like, yeah, that's absolutely the way we do things. Got it. But when we apply this concept in verse 17 to God, not only is it radical, it's unacceptable to this world. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 17, it says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. you Catch it? What he's saying is, if you wanna know the truth, go do it, and you'll find out. If you wanna know if something's true, if you can trust it, go try it, and you'll find out on your own. Now think about that. What he's saying is, this is, uh, this is hands-on learning. This is tactile learning. This is on-the-job training. This is learning by doing. We do this in every aspect of our life. Think about it. Internships, apprenticeships, mentorships. That's what we do when we're trying to learn, understand the truth to find out if we can trust it. We do it ourselves, we put it in practice, we get our hands on it. Think about science, right? What we do when we think something might be true, we develop a hypothesis and then do we just say, well I got a hypothesis so I'm just gonna accept it and be good. No, we develop a hypothesis, then we do it, put it to the test, run it over and over until we know if it's true, and once we know it's true, guess what you develop? We develop trust. This is what we do in the world. Sports, we, we, we want to make sure that we can kick a field goal, put a basketball through a hoop, jump over a bar. Do we just accept it, or do we practice it? We put it into, put it into practice to find out if it's true, we can do it what we do in this world, in every other aspect of our life. But when it comes to God, the question of who is Jesus, when the question of does God exist, the question of can he work miracles, does he love me, what we say is, well, show me the proof, and then I'll believe. Show me the proof, and then I'll work God in my life. Right? That's what this world does. That's what we do as churches sometimes. I can't pray for a miraculous healing just let me know if it's going to happen, and then I'll pray for it. I'm too nervous. We want the proof before we'll do it. And what Jesus says is, no, if you want to know if it's true, if you want to trust my word and know that it's from God, just do as well. You have all the proof you ever need. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we we applied that anywhere else? Basketball season still going on. You imagine if you said, I'm never gonna take a shot unless I have the proof it's gonna go in, right? Never taking a shot unless I know. You never take a shot. You never take a shot. And yet we live out every other aspect of our life that way, but we won't apply it to knowing and understanding God. I love the teaching in there. Sometimes we breeze past those. So Jesus... He encounters that group of people. It's people that didn't know him, new believers. They had to deal with the question of who is Jesus. And all he does is point back to God, to God, to God. Then we get to verse 25. Verse 25, we deal with yet a third group of people. So we had Jesus' brothers. We had a, a large mix of people who didn't know who Jesus was. And now in verse 25, we see people who are from Jerusalem. Now these are people who are from Jerusalem who may have known Jesus, seen and experienced Jesus, or had a second-hand account of Jesus because they're under the authority of the Jewish leaders in that city, and they know they're after him. And so they hear Jesus teaching, and they say, in verse 25, at some point, some of the people around Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? And here he is speaking publicly, they're not saying a word. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But, but wait a minute, we know where this guy comes from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. So this third group of people, right, This is a different group of people because they have knowledge from the authorities, they have experience of being around and hearing from Christ, and they have knowledge from a tradition of what it will look like when the Christ comes. And I like this group of people, I, I love this. I, I, before Jesus responds, I have to think he's, he's almost happy that like you're doing it right, you're just not quite there. You see, what they're doing is they're taking all of their sources of knowledge and they're trying to apply it to answer the question, who is Jesus? And they're saying, well, my experience with Jesus leads me to this, that, that it can't be true. And, and the tradition I have of what it's gonna be when the Christ comes, which, by the way, is an extra-biblical tradition, says that the Christ won't be known. And my third source is the authorities, right? Your pastor's priests above you, and they're saying, no, this isn't, Jesus can't be the Messiah. So they're weighing all these sources, and they're trying to figure it out, like, who is this guy? He can't really be the Messiah, the Christ, right? And look at Jesus' response. He hears them, he's teaching the temple, and he, he doesn't just respond, he cries out, Yes, you know me. You know where I'm from. I am not here on my own. But he who sent me is true. And you don't know him. But I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. What he's saying is he hears these people and he's saying, yeah, you're looking at all of those sources and you're trying to figure out and you think you know me because of your experience and what the leaders are saying in this tradition you're holding, but you're missing a source because you've gone to everything but God. You have not gone and asked God who I am. You've not gone and questioned God to reveal who I am in my claims. And he's saying, because of that, if you knew God, you'd know me. If you knew God, you'd know who I was. You think you know me. But it's just because of your experience, your traditions, and you have kept them all from God. For this group of people, when it comes to who is Jesus, this Jesus is a picture that they've built based on all these sources, and they've never tested it against who God says He is. So, what's the application for us? I think it's a lot the same. You see, we have a picture of Jesus who we grew up with in Sunday school or our parents taught us. We've got a picture of Jesus who we've heard from our friends. We've got a picture of Jesus we may have heard from a pastor up here. We've got a picture of Jesus who does these incredible things, and we see him on social media. We see you know, emails circulated. We see new books written, and we've got all these pictures of Jesus. But if you're not going back and making sure that that picture looks exactly like the picture in Scripture that God says he is, Missing the boat. when you Just like these folks, when they had to answer the question of who is Jesus, does it look like who Jesus said he is? Or have we painted a picture all on our own? Have we painted a picture that looks more like ourselves than Jesus? That's the third group of people. And because of this, this statement that he made, which again is pointing to his deity and who he is that he's from a father is so controversial. People immediately, as you see in verse 30, they try to seize him. Nobody laid a hand on him. Some, even in hearing this, have said, When the Christ comes, will anything, anybody do more miraculous signs? And they believe. But there's still division. The Pharisees hear about this and they send the guards. Kind of enough is enough. Let's go get this guy and arrest him. Right? He's painting a picture that he's God, a picture that we don't agree with. And then we get to the last day of the festival, the feast. Look with me down here on verse 37. It says, on the last and greatest day of the feast. So if you're not familiar with this feast, right, it's, it's a week long. It, it starts on the first and ends on the eighth day with um, days of rest. And on this eighth day, they're going to pour water out on the altar. And what this signifies, this huge celebration, this signifies when they were wandering around in the wilderness and they were dying of thirst. The people were dying of thirst and they cried out to Moses to go to God and give them something to drink, give them water so they didn't die of thirst. Moses went to God and God told him to take his staff to the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water poured out. And it was this life-saving water, this earthly physical body, life-saving water that saved God's people while they were wandering. And they remember that in this feast. And on the seventh day, the priests go out and they draw water from the pool. And they come in and, and they're gonna circle the altar seven times and then pour this water out in remembrance and celebration of what God did in rescuing his people there, in quenching his thirst, in giving them life-saving water. And I want you to get this picture now, people. Folks, let's, let's look at this picture. This is the last day of the fest, this culmination, and everybody's there. There's thousands of people at the temple and around the altar, and they're watching this. They know what this celebration's about. They know this is about God's life-saving gift of water. And they're watching the priest go around with this. And they're waiting for this water to be poured out in in remembrance of this. Everybody's quiet. Everybody's watching. And then what does it say here in verse 37? It says, Jesus, in the midst of this, stands up and in a loud voice says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water... Will flow within him. Do you imagine? Everybody turns and stares. It's this, this moment in the ceremony where they are remembering God's gift of life-saving water there. And Jesus says, I have the, the water of eternal life. The one you've been waiting for with the Messiah. And it's right here. Anybody who wants it, come and drink. It's the moment that they remembered, the moment that they were waiting for, and Jesus says, it's right here, come drink. And Look at the response. We don't see, the next verse doesn't say everybody got up and ran to Jesus. It doesn't say everybody ran there to drink and fill their cup. Look down in verse 40, it says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man's a prophet. Others said he's the Christ. Still others, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? People were divided. Some people believed and some wanted to seize him. Think about that picture. Can you imagine waiting for the Messiah? He is there and he's got his arms raised up and he's screaming, I'm here. It's a fountain overflowing with water, thirst quenching water. And rather than take your cup and go drink, everybody's sitting around and would rather argue and die of thirst. They would rather argue and die of thirst than go be filled by Jesus. Let's look at how a final group of people respond to this miraculous event. The guards who were sent after them, finally they went back to the chief priests in verse 45. And the Pharisees who asked them, they said, hey, Didn't you see that? Why didn't you bring him back? We asked you to go get him. Why didn't you bring him? And they said, look, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And they said, you mean he's deceived you also? Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on him. Then Nicodemus, one of their own, says, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? You go look into it, you'll find that no prophet comes from Galilee. And I think what this shows us is this is kind of a sad picture. It's a bit unfortunate. It's that this group of people, these leaders, when faced with the question of who is Jesus, they'd rather, and I guess our terms today, they'd rather just shout people down than consider who Jesus really is. They'd rather make fun of you, call names, and push you away. And actually entertain the conversation and see what God says about Jesus. And I think that's the sad thing because unfortunately there's just going to be people in our lives and our world today who would rather shout you down and make fun of you for being a believer in Jesus Christ than have a conversation. There's people that rather than entertain it themselves and deal with sin and a possibility of salvation would rather just make up names and push you into another category. It's the reality of what it is. These people at the end, who were faced with the question, who is Jesus, ignored the question altogether. So I'd ask you, everyone today, do you have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? We're all in different stages of our life. There there are those who might be like Jesus's brother, right? And when asked with the question of who is Jesus, we've really built a picture up of Jesus because we want the Jesus that benefits us. There's other people here, there's there's probably folks here today in our lives online who have never heard of Jesus before or you're just trying to figure out and you've got the question, who is Jesus? There's those of us out there that are doing really well. You've got a great walk, spiritual walk. Things are going really well in your life, maybe financially, maybe in your marriage, with your kids, at work. While things are going really well, have you ever stopped and asked, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus amidst the prosperous life? For those of us that things may not be going well, maybe we've had a hard time this past year. Maybe you've had a tough time in your marriages, relationships, school. Maybe you've had unanswered prayers for a long time. Maybe you've asked for healing and haven't seen it. And it just seems like adversity everywhere we go. What does the answer look like to the question of who is Jesus in your life? I want to end with this because no matter what situation you're in in your life, no matter how good things are, how bad things are, whether you've heard or you've been a Christian for a long time, no matter what the situation is, that your life has turned or changed, Jesus is always going to be the same. Always. In the good and the bad, Jesus is going to be the same. And I want you to hear today, whether it's the first time or the first time in a long time, I want you to hear from Jesus who he is and always will be. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life I am the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, and before Abraham ever was, I am. He is. Folks, I'd ask you today, let it be a burden this week. Do you have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for calling us. Thank you for opening your arms wide and just asking us to receive. Lord, I'm so thankful of the question of who is Jesus is the answer is our Savior, the Savior for our sins, the one who bore the weight that we couldn't. Jesus, I pray that this is a burden on us this week and moving forward that we have to answer that question in our life. Who is Jesus and that you respond. You show us who you truly are, not who we want you to be, Jesus, but who you are. Reveal that truth to us. Thank you so much for this opportunity to hear.